0: If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the book of Romans, page 795 in our church Bibles. Good. And in just a moment or two, we're going to begin reading from Romans through the first ten verses. Many of you will know this is our second sermon as we work through the book of Romans. And so, if you're here and you're new and you're wondering why we're here, well, that's why we're here. We generally work through the Bible verse by verse here. And so, this morning... We are going to look at the few verses in the opening part of Romans. I just got another text from Scott and he asked for another prayer from Melanie, so it'd be probably wise for us to pray that after we read the Bible and ask God for his his help. Verse one, chapter one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who as to his human nature was a descendant of david and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of god by his resurrection from the dead jesus christ our lord through him and for his name's sake we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith and you all you who you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we need that grace and peace now. And So as we pray again for Melanie, we pray that she'll be able to have her surgery on Thursday. And the infection will be removed and all the things that will be taking place for that surgery to take place, the the pre-ops and the post-ops and all that stuff, we ask for your tender mercy on a lovely lady, Melanie. And we're just going to cast ourselves on your mercy on her behalf. And now, God, what we need from you so desperately is for you to give us grace to hear your voice, And to see you alter our lives as your son is preached by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are your people. We are in your place. We are under your rule. We are under your blessing. And and we and I, we desperately need that blessing now. And so for the honor of Christ's name, we pray and plead with you, God, that you would give it. Amen. Amen. Well, all of human history is bound up with God's commitment to rescue people from sin's penalty, from sin's power, and one day, thank God, sin's presence through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I mean, that is it. That is Bible. That, that is, to me, it's stunning. So please do not simply view God as useful, so God takes away stuff, uh, fear, worry, disease, and he gives stuff, money, peace, and nice things. God is not useful. God is beautiful. And forgiveness and a relationship with him are two of the best expressions of his gospel. So, again, all of human history is bound up. It's the story of time with God's commitment to rescue people from sin's penalty, sin's power, and one day sin's presence through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when I hear that, when I hear myself say that, personally, I want to say, why me? I mean, to have a good and gracious God who is working in history to that end on my behalf, even though I am still a mountain of sin, that is stunning. That is stunning. So when Paul begins his letter, after by writes his initial introduction of himself in verse 1, he takes us down a line. Actually, the Holy Spirit, the, the, the divine author, the one who carried Paul through his writing, he takes us down a line to capture our minds with the historical reality of God's loving commitment to rescue people from sin and death through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is, if your Bible is open, and I sure hope it is, verse 1b, that is the gospel of God. It is beautiful, it is good news, and it is loved. So the other day I was at the YMCA and there was a fellow there and he was really, really happy. And I was overhearing this conversation, so let me apologize right off the bat, but I just couldn't help it. It was really loud. And he was really happy because he just found out that this girl who works out there also, he just found out that she likes him. And you should have seen the guy. He was so happy. His little muscles were bouncing all around. And it was great. It's nice to see people in love. I mean, I was genuinely happy for him. Why was I happy for him? Well, better yet, why was he so happy? He just heard some good news. Right? He just heard some good news. So in a world where bad news is the bent, either through private conversations or public assertions or a roundtable discussion, you know, with a, and forgive me, with a few grumpy men and women at Caribou, Paul counters that by peppering us with this good news. And the way he starts, at least on the surface, if you're looking at your Bibles, we might be like around verse two, okay, what's, what is the point of all that? The, these opening verses, they kind of seem like high street stuff, you know, we're just simple people trying to make our way through the universe. So here's one. My spouse never helped me with laundry. Can you preach about that? That seems useful. But that line of thought would not be helpful for a number of reasons. For example, if someone asked you, who is Jesus Christ? Would you answer like Paul answered in verse 3b, the son of David or the descendant of David? Probably not. But Paul does. And it's a good answer. Why is it a good answer? Because it sets Jesus in history. It sets Jesus in real time. So Jesus, you know, just didn't drop out of the sky as a 30-year-old man with a King James Version Bible in his hand. And Jesus wasn't, you know, formalized ionic energy, which was shaped into his body by the invisible hand of God. No, Jesus, although he was from all eternity, was flesh and blood born into time, into this world, and he was predicted before his birth. In other words, if you think about it, Jesus... Jesus has a backstory, okay? And backstories typically have two main roles to fulfill. The first is to give us really important information about the main character. So here it is, here is Jesus. And the second is to help give a fully realized picture of a person who existed in an actual historical world. So the backstory has data on Jesus' history, prehistory, revealing what was said about him, who he is, why he acts the way he acts, why he does what he does, and how he, why he thinks like he thinks. And a backstory also reveals family ties and world events such as wars that affect the story. It affects his story, and it gives historical data to check. That's so important, to check in light of his story especially all the parts of Jesus' life which are tied to, to the main conflict, if you would, of good versus evil. All of which serves to make the truthfulness of the story stick. It gives stability, which comes with history. Now, if you're paying attention, here's the payoff. The reason why that's so important, because that's what sets the Bible apart from every other holy book, because no other holy book has verifiable history. And no other holy book runs a storyline that stays in step with and is tied to human history. And that's very important if you want to check the thing out. So what Paul is doing is feeding his readers, verse 7. You see it there? His readers who are loved by God, if you like, they were at the YMCA and they just found out God loves them. He's feeding them the fitness of Jesus Christ. The competence of Christ. The competence of Christ and his work on the cross. His fitness to save the wickedness of men and women. His commitment to save the wickedness of men and women and turn them into his family. His fitness to keep, to keep his hold on his sheep. Because he's not going to lose any of his sheep. His, his competence to forgive and forgive and forgive by his grace because of his cross. And his fitness to to promise he will gently lead his people through life and past death. And I have a sneaking suspicion that most of the concern in this room are not about past death stuff. I'm sure there's some, but my guess is most of it is in life stuff. That's where your concern is. Will Jesus carry me through this life? And it can be too much for some of us. And it can ruin things. And Jesus knows that. And Jesus promises his care. And he promises us that he will sanctify that concern. Therefore, Paul, who says nothing at all directly about money in this whole letter, Paul wants his readers to rejoice in knowing the good news, that the kind and the gracious God has sent his one and only son into the world who is both willing to rescue And he's able to rescue. And he has a human history. Verse 3. Do you see it there? Human history to fortify his truth. And he has divinity. Verse 4. To accomplish his task. Now, to me, that is very, very telling. Because it tells me that Paul knows our faith in Christ as Christians is not built by, if you would, preaching introspectively. In other words, he's not going to build faith by continually challenging people whether they have faith or not. Do you walk into the room, and my big job is say, are you a Christian or not? And Paul also knows that our faith is not by, by preaching moralistically, which is, has the exact opposite effect. When you, when you focus on, the attention on the self rather than on Jesus Christ, it ruins things. And he knows our faith is not built by telling us, you know, all things which are wrong with the culture. And he talks about the human heart, Sure but he doesn't take those easy pot shots about what is wrong with our culture, our world, a world which, by the way, God said he loves. So if someone asked me what is wrong in the world, I'd do my G.K. Chesterton thing. Remember, G.K. Chesterton was asked by the London Times newspaper, what is wrong with the world? Remember how he said it? What is wrong with the world? Me, signed G.K. Chesterton. So Christian faith, faith is Paul's aim here, because he's writing to Christians. Christian faith is built by the meticulous and careful exposition of a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. His character, his work, his history. Right? So remember we said this a few weeks ago. When you fall in love with somebody, what do you say to them? You say, tell me everything about you. And just keep telling me everything about you because I know there's more. So do you remember this story? Remember uh, Robert Dabney who wrote a letter to his friend Clement Vaughn? Dabney was dying. And he was a Christian, but death was scaring the dickens out of him. And so, so Dabney wrote to Vaughn to tell him of his fears and to just get some help. And Vaughn's reply was, was It was Christ-centered. It was theologically incisive, pastorally loving. And this is what he did. Dabney asked, excuse me, Vaughn asked Dabney what a traveler would do if he came upon this great chasm which a long bridge was extended over. Okay, just picture that in your head. You're walking. There's this great chasm. There's this long bridge. You've never seen the bridge before, but you need to cross it. Listen to what he said. What does he do to breed confidence in the bridge? He looks at the bridge. He gets down to examine it. He doesn't stand at the bridgehead and turn his thoughts curiously in on his own mind to see if he has confidence in the bridge. If his examination of the bridge gives him a certain amount of confidence and that he wants more, how does his faith in the safety of the bridge grow? Why, in the same way, he still continues to examine the bridge. Listen to this sentence. Now, my dear old man, You just think of what you are allowed to trust in. Isn't that beautiful? You just think what you are allowed to trust in. Think of the master's power. Think of his love. Think how he is interested in the soul that searches for him and will not stop until he finds him. Think of what he has done. His work. That blood of his is mightier than all the sins of all the sinners who have ever lived. Don't you think it will master your fears? Dear friend, I have done to you just what I would want you to do for me if I were lying in your place for we're all in the same need. May God give you grace not to lay too much stress on your faith but to grasp the great ground and confidence Christ and all his work and all his personal fitness to be a sinner's refuge. Faith is only an eye to see him. And then he ends, I've been praying for you that God would quiet your pains and enable you to see the gladness of the gospel at every step. Goodbye, God be with you. And then he ends the title of our sermon, Think of the Bridge. I read that letter Thursday afternoon, and the first thing I said to myself, thank God that the ground is level at the foot of the cross for all of us. We all need to continuously think of the bridge, the Lord Jesus Christ. And aren't you glad that Vaughn's reply was that, you know what, man, here's four steps to have more faith in Jesus Christ. Or how about this one? Dabney, you are such a weak sinner. Man up and cross the bridge. God helps those who help themselves. Or how about this one, Dabney? Your sins are so great that as you, soon as you step on the bridge, the thing's going to collapse. And if it doesn't collapse when you get on the bridge, because of your kids, it's going to collapse. Somebody's going to pay for your sins, Dabney. That's probably why you're scared now, Dabney. Maybe you know. Maybe you should fast. It's all so foolish, but it's been said. So what do you say that we take the rest of our time and we study our Bible so that we can study the bridge, the Lord Jesus Christ? Number one, the bridge and the prophets in the Old Testament. You see it there, verse 2. This letter is gospel. So Paul tells us something about the good news of Jesus. Verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the gospel has a history, Old Testament History, which Paul names here as the Holy Scriptures. That's important. So, as you look at the Bible, many of you know this, there's at least like almost 332 prophecies in the Old Testament, just in one section in the Old Testament, which refer to the Messiah, pointing to Jesus Christ. Most of them were fulfilled at his first coming. The Old Testament is literally loaded with truth about Christ, laying out the groundwork for his coming that we know of. And recorded for us in the New Testament. Indeed, Jesus himself stressed often in his earthly ministry that the Old Testament scripture bore witness to him. This is John 5. Jesus said, these are the scriptures, Old Testament, which bear witness to me. Which tells me that the Old Testament is not just simply moral lessons. And it's definitely not only like leadership principles. It's about Jesus. For example, Daniel 7, he was the son of man. Isaiah 53, he's the suffering servant. Psalm 2, he was the one that would be despised by men and women. Indeed, Jesus himself, you can read about this in Luke chapter 24. He said the entire Old Testament, and I'm going to quote to you now, everything must be fulfilled which is written about me, Jesus, in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then Luke says that Jesus opened their minds so they can understand the scriptures, the Old Testament. Verse 46, he told them, this is what was written, Old Testament, Christ will suffer. Old Testament, rise from the dead on the third day. Old Testament, repentance and forgiveness of sin will be preached in his name to all the nations. So what I want you to see is the gospel of Christ is in the Old Testament. You could say in very large measure that it is the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus had to come to Jesus' teaching time with them, and he sat down in Luke 24, we read this, and he explained himself from the entire Old Testament so that when he sent them out to preach, they spoke from history, and the Bible, if you would, that they spoke of, from, as a witness to Jesus, Old Testament. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us that the freshly restored Peter was preaching Christ from the Old Testament, quoting it specifically at Pentecost. Paul, Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 13, Paul reasoned with people from the Scriptures, Old Testament, that Christ must suffer and rise, and the Messiah was Jesus, and all of it, again, according to the Scriptures, according to the Old Testament. Even as I think about it now in John 3, Jesus told the, the leader who should have known better, that you must be born again. And he told them, you are a master teacher of the Old Testament and you can't see this. What's wrong with you? He didn't say it like that, I did. But you understand. So what we have here is thousands of years of God speaking through the prophets, recording for us in the Old Testament, the gospel. In other words, the Old Testament says, hey, you look at the bridge. Look at the bridge. That's our first point. The second The bridge is a son of David. You see it there in verse 3. Paul goes on, on, verse 3, regarding his son, gospel, regarding his son, who has to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Now, this might be old hat for you, but we need to say this. King David, who Paul is referring to here, lived about a thousand years roughly before Jesus did. He was a very prominent figure in the Old Testament. Besides Moses and Abraham, he was probably the most prominent figure in the Old Testament. For example, the second part of the first book of Samuel, the entire second book of Samuel, and the whole first book of Chronicles, so that's two and a half long Old Testament books are entirely devoted to, if you would, the story of David. Most of the Psalms were written by David. He was the second king of Israel between Saul and Solomon. And although he had, and this tells you something about God, although he had a terrible portion of his life where, remember, he lusted and then he committed adultery and later on he had a man killed because of that sin. God still, and this is incredible, God called David, you know this, a man after his own heart. I was up early this morning reviewing stuff, and I thought, I wrote down Moses, I wrote down David, and I wrote down Paul, and I thought to myself, oh my, three major players who essentially committed murder, and God used them mightily. Let's just think about that for a moment. I I never get past that. sometimes I think, you know, Jimmy had godly parents. We praise God for that. And then Jimmy became a godly kid. We praise God for that. And then Jimmy became a godly. That's wonderful. Moses killed a man. God used him. David had a man killed. So Paul had many people killed. It's remarkable. If you read Psalm 51, you'll find out probably why God said that about David. And so God made this... David, an incredible promise. David said, God, I want to build you a house. God said, no, no, I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty, a throne. And so God promised that he would establish David's kingdom, his dynasty, forever. And Israel never forgot that promise. In fact, they gave it a name. They called it God's everlasting covenant with David. And listen carefully. Because of that covenant, because of that promise, they they drew strength from this. It gave them great, great courage. And it gave them great certainty, Christian listen, it gave them great certainty about their future. Everything about their life was built on that promise from God to David that his throne would last forever and it shaped how Israel viewed everything, specifically their future. Now you know that sometimes that promise made them really foolish, it made them very selfish, arrogant, and forgetful of who God was. But that shouldn't surprise us, because we're tempted to do the same with the gospel. However, in time, God, through his preachers, these were men who had the um, recipients, if you would, of divine revelation, they began to understand that the promise wasn't really this kind of endless succession of Davidic kings. But this promise to the son of David that there was going to be a a Messiah, one person the Lord's anointed, whose kingdom would know no end, And he would rule over everyone and everything forever. So it's not Christmas yet, but this scripture is very, very telling. Isaiah chapter 9, listen to what it says. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So the bridge is the son of David. And just to add one more piece, the opening chapter of Luke's gospel, five times in the first chapter, you see the phrase referring to Jesus, the son of David, the son of David, the son of David, the son of David. You see, that's the good news. God becomes a man, and that man is fully human, fully a son from the line of David who can sympathize with men and women now, who can bear the sin of men and women, who can be the substitute for men and women, who can take the punishment of God for men and women. And you know, you don't have to be paying too much attention to culture. That that right now in our culture, if someone blows it, by and large, our culture, by and large, is, is... Condemning, unforgiving, and they want someone to pay. Now I'm not taking a pot shot; that's a reality. So, ten or fifteen years ago, the cultural climate was truth is relative to you. So you do your truth over there, and and I'll do my truth over there. But that's not now. The inevitable happened. We found out that our world is much smaller. And now our truths overlap each other, and most people just can't walk away. And by nature, we are hostile, we are condemning, we are unforgiving. And we either isolate people, or we want to punish those people who disagree or think we're wrong. And the world needs to know forgiveness. I mean, that is so fair. It needs to know forgiveness in order that it can forgive. So thank God for Jesus, who sympathized with our weakness. It's beautiful. That's out of Hebrews. He sympathizes with our weakness. He swallows up our sin as a man, son of David. So he's the right man then. He has the right to rule and reign, and he's the only one that can restore the kingdom of God, if you would, and redeem the creation which began. How did that all happen? (laughs) It began with him taking our punishment on the cross that we might have forgiveness, that we might know forgiveness, and that we might be able to extend meaningful forgiveness to others. That's our bridge. What a bridge. Now, before we leave these two points, the bridge and the prophets in the Old Testament, the bridge, the son of David, what I want you to see, and this is really important, is that Jesus was in direct harmony, if you would, a continuity with history. Old Testament history, and specifically Davidic history, that was written thousands and thousands of years before he steps onto the stage of human history. And continuity is important for human beings. Loved ones, so many people are rootless. They have no sense of history, nothing that they can identify with, that they can draw strength from in history, the way God designed us to be as humans. So you see, history provides comfort because it reminds us that we're not alone. Now, this is important. Billions of people have done this life before. Billions of people have lived through all the things that we are living through before. So I've always hated it when public figures would go, you know, this is our last chance. If we don't do it now, it'll never get done. I'm like, really? Like, how do you know that? And by the way, I'm not so good with threats. And that sounds like a threat. It sounds like a person who needs to know about the bridge. That's why this history is so important. History can give us concrete spiritual experiences. So the Jewish philosopher, Abraham Copeland, he calculated, listen to this, 60% of of Judaism's 613 commandments involve physical ritual that's rooted in history. So lighting candles, uh, um, ritual baths, these are like deeds done that speak something. A way of expressing um, things that are, if you would, too deep for words. You mean like communion? What do we do when we take communion? Well, part of what we're doing is we're retelling the history. Look what Jesus has done for you at the cross. And so to live in history makes us pause. I mean, I know this. Many wise people I've read about, they self-consciously, they divide their life into chapters. And they focus on the big questions that each part of their life is asking them. And so they want to understand their life, what it means not just for the immediate moment, but what it means in light of what they leave behind and what it means for those in the future. That's Jesus Christ. That's Jesus Christ. And don't you do that? I mean, I, life is so much more than pleasure. Pleasure is great. I plan on having a great afternoon, Lord willing, today. But life is so much more than pleasure. So, if you want stability in our existence as Christians, it has to be rooted in Christ. And so what Paul does is he takes Christ, if you would, and he, he plunges us deep into the rock of his certainty, and he begins in human history. He begins in human history. So, so that's important to me. In other words, when Satan tempts me to despair, reminds me of the guilt within, much of which is true. I don't tell him, hey, you know what, Satan, back off. I spent two and a half days at the fair booth. I don't tell him that. What I tell him is what Jesus did in history. And when I tell him what Jesus did in history, he knows he has to back off. Because Jesus has always been my only hope in life and death. And whenever I feel afraid, after I whistle a happy tune... I lock myself into gospel truth. I lock myself into Jesus. And if you forgive me, Jesus is just all right with me. He's enough. He's enough. From the beginning of time to the end of time, this is our God. Takes us to our third point quickly. You see it there, the bridge as the Son of God, verse 4, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God and the power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So yes, Jesus is God's Son. He's one with the Father, one with the Spirit. The Trinity is one, yet what? Distinctively three. And so what Paul wants us to see here is that the whole Trinity is working for our salvation. The Son took on the voluntary submission part. The Father, only through the power of the Spirit, raised the Son through the, to the, from the dead. excuse me. And it was the agency of the Holy Spirit, empowered in Jesus in his voluntary submission. So the Spirit of God was doing the work of God in Jesus. That's why John tells us Jesus was filled to overflowing with the Spirit. And that shows us that Jesus was so submissive. That's Philippians 2. Jesus sets aside things. How much did Jesus set aside? Because it's hard for humans to let go of power. We want our power, we want our rights. If we lose them, if we lose our voice, we tend to go ballistic. Jesus sets aside everything except only what was needed to take our punishment and die our death. What a bridge. I'm going to say that again. Jesus set aside everything except only what was needed to take our punishment and to die our death. And it was the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of power, verse 4, that, if you would, brought that resurrection. So why is that important? Well, again, it indicates that the Father and the Son and the Spirit were all working in harmony so that the Son could die for sins and be raised. That's the great, if you would, affirmation that Jesus is, yes, He is truly the Son of God. So in Christ, we find the full humanity and we find full divinity. And again, it's fully indicated here that God Himself raised Him to the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's good news. That's our bridge. It was the Father who loved the world. And because the Father loved the world, the Son died for the world. So he identifies with us. He is he's human, but he's God. He suffers. He understands the role of human life. He understands temptation. That's why he sympathizes with us. That's probably why we're not very sympathetic at times when people go south because we don't understand fully what it means to take on the full brunt of temptation, but Jesus did. And so what Paul is saying is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is the turning point in the power of the Holy Spirit, which once made known, okay, once the world knows that Jesus is alive, it either sets the world on edge or forgive me, it sends the world to dancing. That's it. Either either you're on edge or you're dancing. And the final bridge, verse 4, pretty simple, isn't it? You see that there? Paul tells that through Christ he received grace and apostleship to call people to the gospel, to obedience through faith. What is that? Well, that is the only obedience which God accepts. The only obedience which God accepts is the obedience of Jesus Christ. I hope you know that. That does not negate our call to obey. But our call to obey is just not the gospel. So Satan loves to take what is beautiful and ruin it. God loves to take what is, what is ruined and make it beautiful. And by grace, Satan would ruin the gospel with all kinds of versions of the gospel. And he tends, if you would, to make it about morality. But Paul says here very clearly, obedience through faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's the message of the letter. Righteous people live by what? By faith. The righteousness of God in the gospel. Listen to Tim Keller. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an offense to both religion and irreligion. It can be co-opted by either morality or relativism. The traditional values approach to life is moral conformity that... That approach is taken by the Pharisees. It is that you must lead a very, very good life. The progressive approach embodied in the Herodians is self-discovery. You have to decide what is right or wrong for you. And according to the Bible, both of these are ways of being your own Savior and your own Lord. Both are hostile to the message of Jesus. And not only that, both lead to self-righteousness. The moralist says the good people are in and the bad people are out. And of course, we're the good ones. The self-discovery person says, oh no, the progressive, open-minded people are in, and the judgmental bigots are out, and of course, we're the open-minded ones. In Western cosmopolitan culture, there's an enormous amount of self-righteousness about self-righteousness. You know what that means? That there could be a person outside this context who's incredibly defiant, incredibly wicked, and an enemy of Christ get that. But there could be a person in this context who's incredibly self-righteous. And they go through all the the, the outward routines of the life of the church, picture of what a Christian, quote, should be. But they're so self-righteous that they're an enemy of Christ. That's why Paul says what he says. And at the very end there, which is actually the very end in the Greek, the very beginning, he says we're doing this all Verse 5, for the honor of Christ's name. That is the highest good for humanity. God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That's the bridge. That's Jesus. He's your only hope in life and in death. So the bridge is the Old Testament. It's history. It's prophecy. It's theology. The bridge is the son of David uh, in time. The, the bridge is the Son of God, divinity, before time. The bridge is the honor of Christ's name. That's what we were made for. That's what we were made for. Now, I would like to end in a happy way, okay? So, most of you know that I love music. And all through this week, I had to get James Brown's voice out of my head. Because if you know anything about James Brown, when he sings his song, he's always saying, take it to the bridge, take it to the bridge, and, and so that was in my head, take it to the bridge. And I was like, I'm going to take it to Jesus, James. So just back off for a second. I'm going to take it to Jesus. But I said to myself, what in the world is James Brown saying when he says, take it to the bridge? What does he mean by that? So I did a discovery. And this is what it means. It means you, when he says to his friends on stage, take it to the bridge, what he's telling them to do is like, guys, take it back to the original verse. And take it back to the best point or the high point of the song. You with me? So when he says take it to the bridge, like let's get back to the basis of the song. What the song is really about. Okay? So in my head, I had all of you picture. I was going to point to you and you were going to say, take it to the bridge. And then I was going to read the scripture. But you probably won't do that. (laughs) But I'm going to take it to the bridge. I'm going to take it to the bridge one, two, three, four times. And then we'll be done. First time I'm going to take you to the bridge. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. And this is what he says. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. Full stop. That's the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, but counting them against who? Against his son. I'm going to take you to the bridge again. 1 Peter 3.18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Finally, Hebrews 10.10. This is speaking about the will of God. And by that will, we have been made holy. Okay, tell me how, because I desperately desire holiness. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's it. That's it. Never let go out of your mind the thoughts of the crucified and risen Savior, the bridge. Jesus Christ let's pray just a moment if please if we could just reflect father a lot of times when when people leave this earth or getting ready to leave this earth they, they always say things like um, No one will ever say that they wish they would have worked more. They would say, I wish I would have been with my kids more or my wife more or husband. We understand that. And the reason why I say that is I think when we leave this earth, we are going to say, I wish I would have not underestimated your goodness and your kindness and your tenderness to us. And I wish I would have not underestimated how forgiving you are through Jesus Christ and how powerful the gospel is and how how." I need it, and there are hundreds and thousands of people in our context that need it as well. My guess is we'll be able to say that, and we'll be right. There's never enough people to tell. There's never enough that we can do. And so we thank you that we have to be saved by a good and gracious God. And so we we thank you for that thank you for the gospel and oh we need to know the depth of it and we pray that in Christ's name we will know the depth of it as we move through these opening verses and chapters of Romans now to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world be glory forever and ever world without end Amen God bless you. You're dismissed. I'm going to be up here if you have any questions.